Hello, everybody. We hear so much talk about holding people accountable for their actions. What about those who commit crimes against humanity? Most of us have heard about truth and reconciliation commissions as tools for that. You're about to meet Virginia Lassick, who is a senior expert in truth-seeking and civic engagement at the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ. Here is how they describe what they do on their website. Quote, we work side by side with victims to obtain acknowledgement and redress for massive human rights violations. Hold those responsible to account reform and build democratic institutions and prevent the recurrence of violence or repression. What a worthwhile and amazing mission. Now, I want to know, what does it take to work in an organization like that? What has she learned about human nature, about hearing about crimes around the globe? Here she is. Hello, everybody. I am beyond excited to bring to you Virginie Lattish from the International Center for Transitional Justice. I ran across their website about six months, uh, six months ago. It's a senior expert in truth-seeking and civic engagement at the ICTJ leading work in around the globe, Canada, Colombia, Cyprus, Liberia, the Gambia, Kenya, Nepal, Tunisia, Uganda. As I said to her, I am totally impressed with any organization that claims to be international and includes African countries in their list of places where they are. Her, web, her bio mentions that she's committed to listening to survivors, problem solving with them, and advancing effective responses. Let's break that. Listening, problem solving, effective responses. I hope y'all can see from this brief introduction why I'm so excited. So welcome, Virginie. Glad to have you. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure and honor to be here with you today. Okay. Our focus is on racial and social justice, as you well know. Tell me about your background regarding racial and social justice, multi diversity, multiculturalism, however you phrase it. Sure. Well, I think I'll start with sort of my identity. Um, as you mentioned, my name is French. So my mother is French, my father is German, and I was born in the United States. So from a really young age, I've had multiple languages, multiple nationalities um, in my household. Um, I'm a French dual French-American citizen. And so I think that from, you know, from the beginning kind of opened me to different cultures, different ways of seeing things and thinking about the world. Then I think as, um, as I went through my studies in college, I started learning about um, struggles in different parts of the world. I focused, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot on Latin America and learning about the involvement of the United States, uh, often not 
very positive in some of the civil wars in the 80s and 90s. And then more importantly, got really interested in what was being done to deal with the legacies of, of those wars. And then I also, I always remember I, I was in a class reading about South Africa. This was in about 1995, no, 1998. The Truth Commission in South Africa was drawing to a close or was in the midst of working. And there was an article about a woman who said, I just want to know who to forgive. So from the beginning, I've always been in a household with multiple languages, backgrounds, and, and traditions, which I think opened me to recognizing that there's not just one way to see the world, to approach the world. Mm -hmm. um, then in, in college, I studied political science, started learning more and more about um, recent politics in Latin America, the involvement of the US, often not very positive in many of the civil wars, and what was being done um, to deal with the consequences of those wars through different truth commissions that were happening in Chile and Guatemala. And then my junior year of college, I read this article uh, about South Africa, and I will never forget, it was a short one-page article in which they interviewed a mother who had lost her son um, at the hands of the apartheid regime. And she said, you know, I'm about the truth commission that was going on there. I just wanna know who to forgive. And I remember being so struck by that, thinking if that had happened to me, would I have mm -hmm. the courage, the spirit to give that response? And I don't think so, but it just, really intrigued me and it set me then on this path to really understand a bit more how people, how countries deal with the legacy of mass atrocity. Um, so after college, I got a fellowship for a year that allowed me to study reconciliation in Guatemala and in South Africa. So this is it's a Watson fellowship. You can write your own project. So I kind of put together what was interesting me at that time. And I was lucky to be awarded the fellowship. So I graduated from college and then left for South Africa alone, not knowing anyone there. Oh. Um, with the one condition of this fellowship is that you can't return home for a year. So they're pushing young Americans to, you know, go beyond their comfort zone and be exposed to different uh, places, different approaches. So I ended up spending, I was supposed to be six months in South Africa and six months in Guatemala, looking at reconciliation in those two countries. I loved South Africa so much that I ended up spending eight months there a little bit in Johannesburg, then in Durban, then in Cape Town. And I was volunteering with different organizations working on these issues, and then also interviewing people who had been part of the truth and reconciliation process uh, in South Africa. And actually I was able to attend one of the final amnesty hearings. So maybe people aren't familiar with the South African Truth Commission, but because of their political context, when there was a transition from the apartheid regime to the democratically elected ANC, the apartheid regime made a condition that they would leave office and give up arms only on the condition that the ANC would not hold them criminally responsible for what happened. Yeah. So a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a tool that was first developed, I think you, you trace it back, the early ones were in either Eastern Europe or in Latin America. Um, to after a period of massive human rights violations. So for example, there was one in Argentina and in Chile where hundreds of thousands of people were disappeared and no, nobody knew what happened to their loved ones. These were political opponents of the regime. 
And it wasn't possible to go through the traditional court system, both because the caseload was too big and the courts were still stacked with cronies of the dictatorship. So the solution that was found, and this is one of the approaches of transitional justice where, where I work, um, the field that I work in is, you know, you try and get as much justice as possible in conditions where it seems that it's impossible to get any. And so a truth commission was de developed as a creative approach to start to get answers for the families of victims, to start to also uncover what allowed these violations to happen? What were the systems in place, the government um, loopholes or areas that allowed these violations to occur? So, as I said, there, was, there were several truth commissions around the world. Yeah, so South Africa was the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission to have its public hearings be broadcast on national television, radio. The thinking was that everyone needed to know what happened during apartheid. Everyone needed to face these facts. And that was really important that it be brought into the home of every South African. Before that, the political context had been perhaps more tricky or complicated in Chile, Argentina, and other contexts. So they were often done behind closed doors. Um, but South Africa really revolutionized this approach, which I think is why if people have heard of a truth commission, they often may have only heard of South Africa. And that's just one of many examples. Um, and, but since then, most truth commissions have followed the model and have had their public hearings be How many truth commission, truth and commissions are there around the globe? There have been over 40. Over 40? Yes, yes. There's a whole- Over 40? Yep. It's something that's been done in many, many contexts. Some countries have had more than one. Um, our neighbor to the north, uh, Canada, had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've had a few in the United States. There's been one in Greensboro, North Carolina. There's been one in Maine. Um, there's proposals for some at the national level. So this is a, an approach that's quite um, commonly used in the area of transitional justice. Are these only government entities that call them? Do they sometimes get called by a nonprofit or corporation or something? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually it's, there's both. There are some that are established officially by the government, sometimes through a peace agreement, sometimes through a settlement agreement, if there's a class action lawsuit as there was in Canada. In other contexts, if the government's not quite ready, um, civil society or victims groups have also led civil society led truth seeking processes. So in Guatemala, for example, there was a truth commission led by the Catholic church. And then it was followed by a truth commission that was supported by the United Nations. But actually a lot of the work that Remy, the first one did laid the foundation for the follow-up. Um, you see that in several other countries as well. So is there a template that they use? I mean, how does, how do we get 40 organizations around the world doing this? There are general guidelines and best practices, but what's really important is there is no one model because the beauty of a truth commission is that it's not a legal body, it's ad hoc, it's established to meet the needs of that particular context. So you can adapt it to the particular context, the specificities. 
But if you look at our website, we actually have lots of publications that provide guidance and support on the general outlines. So, you know, in general terms, a mandate will want to have a preamble that explains its purpose, its objectives, the powers. Um, so there's certain elements that have been included in past truth commissions and those who are looking to start a truth commission can look to that so they don't have to reinvent the wheel but then there's a lot of creativity in how you engage with the public how you engage with victims and so that's the part that we really encourage different countries to do what's best for them and for their context okay so let's take the one sponsored by the Catholic Church. People are gonna show up and admit to crimes. What's to keep the government from then filing lawsuit against them unless the government is involved? Right, so that, that brings another really important element of truth commissions as used in our work. Their focus is on victims. It's really a focus on providing a platform for the stories, the perspectives of, of history of the present day that haven't been heard to surface. So that's really the main focus. Some truth commissions have included a focus on perpetrators. South Africa did, that's quite unique. Others have since then. So, but there is this question of due process. So generally if people are speaking about those who committed the harms, there's a debate in, in truth commissions about whether or not people can name names without giving the people named, you know, their due process guarantees. So ah. oftentimes a truth commission will focus on the stories of the survivors or putting those stories in historical context. So if, for example, if you hear 10 narratives about one massacre, then the research team at a truth commission can kind of triangulate those different narratives with what they know about what happened and then present a more complete version of what took place, what allowed it to take place and name institutions, whether it be the military or the government rather than naming individuals. Okay, so let me back up because now I'm realizing that I thought, I thought I knew about Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, but you're telling me I don't. So let me just get some basic facts. Sure. It could be only focused on the victims or it could be the victims and the perpetrators, correct? Yeah, generally it's about, in the mandate, the Truth Commission will establish what period of history or what facts it's seeking to establish, uncover, or analyze. And so it's usually, you know, say for example, in, in Canada, the Truth Commission there was looking at Indian residential schools, which is similar to what we had in the United States, a system of boarding schools where indigenous children were forcibly removed uh, as part of a project of assimilation. So they were looking at survivors of residential schools to understand what happened there and their enduring impacts. So they invited anyone who was at a residential school, but they also involved the churches who ran the schools and churches gave testimony about recognizing the harm that these schools caused and issued statements of apology or reconciliation. So yes, it's it really, each commission has the freedom to be established to determine the scope of its area of inquiry. So most truth commissions last between 
So the range is one to five years. The average is about two to three years. Okay, so whoever decides to take this on has to plan for the long haul. Yes, yes. And that's actually something, you know, right now I'm leading ICGJ's work in the United States, and there's been a lot of discussions about truth commissions. And at some of the city and state levels, they've established truth commissions, as in Maryland, uh, the state where I live. And the commissioners are volunteer positions appointed by the governor or by legislation, rather than internationally, because of what you just said, that this is a big commitment. Usually the commissioners, it's a paid job. It's a very prestigious position that people apply for or are nominated for. And that's your full-time job. I mean, it's more than a full-time job when you're looking to uncover some of the hardest parts of a country's past, right? And you're, you're looking to deal with victims and you're hearing those stories, you're taking those stories in. Um, it's a huge task, not something that you can complete on the side of your job, which in the US system, we have commissions that have been set up where people are appointed on a volunteer basis to avoid conflict of interest. But I think the name commission confuses things. And if we're gonna borrow the international language of truth and reconciliation commission, we have to understand that that's not a volunteer um, process. It's really um, requires significant investment of time and resources and energy for it to be effective, for it to meet its potential. Role. So how, how did you get from Guatemala and South Africa mm-hmm. to the ICTJ? Yeah. Yeah, so when I was in Guatemala and South Africa, you know, looking at truth commissions, working with organizations that were supporting victims in both of those countries. Um, At the same time, I was following developments in this field. A book had just been written by a woman named Priscilla Hayner, one of the co-founders of ICTJ. And she wrote a book about truth commissions. It has a table with all the commissions to date. Uh, She's updated it since then. And, And then I saw that, you know, work was, developing around these questions. And, and that, at that point, I really realized this was where my heart was. Um, I've always been interested in conflict resolution, mediation, but also international relations. And I think this kind of combined those two interests. So I came back and started applying for graduate school um, and looked for programs where I could look at transitional justice, or these types of, of approaches. And this was still a very new field. So many universities weren't offering courses in this topic. Now there's lots of masters in transitional justice and and many, many courses at different universities, which is great. But at the time there wasn't very much, but there was one being taught at Columbia. So I applied there to to go pursue my masters. And while I was there, the ICTJ, or shortly before the ICTJ was established in 2001. And I said, that's where I wanna work someday. and my, my second year of graduate school, I was finished up my master's. Uh, I had an internship. I applied to be an intern at the ICTJ. I was accepted. And then a position opened up. I applied and I've been there ever since. So you set your goal. And I'm looking at you as a college student reading a one page yep. paper. You set your goal and went after it. Hmm. And so this is what you're now doing. Yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. Why? Well, so, you know, I'll go back a little bit to, I was telling the story about South Africa and, and that fellowship that really, I think, established my, my path for the rest of my life, um, that, that experience. I just remember going and learning about the history of South Africa and being struck by, this was in 2000, so it was the end of apartheid, but you could still see parts that hadn't been changed, right? There's still very segregated neighborhoods, um, but people talked about it. This is the white bar, this is the Indian bar, this is the colored bar, this is the black bar. And it was discussed, it was known, and it was something that people were working on. And then I came back to the United States, to Washington DC, and as I was looking for my next step, I got a job at the Legal Aid Society of Washington DC as an uh, intake coordinator investigator. And one of my jobs was to go um, document housing code violations. So I would drive to different parts of Washington DC, take photographs as part of the court cases that we were you know, supporting tenants. And it just struck me, this was a city I had lived in since I was age 12, but now having left the country, I was coming back and I was saying, this is worse than South Africa, but we don't talk about it. I mean, I was shocked to see the living conditions in certain parts of Washington DC in section eight housing and that this was happening in the nation's capital, right? And yes, so I was naive and sheltered, um, but really I think that experience of stepping outside your country, learning about different systems, and then allows you to come back and see your own country through a new light. So that, I always had the sense of wanting to fight for justice and social justice. That's the way I was raised and the values in my family. But I think that experience really cemented it. So, you know, and I really- so, Yeah, so the glorious land that you left when you went away, you came back with new eyes and said, oh, right. it's not just in Venezuela and South Africa that we have these disparities. Exactly. And I knew this land wasn't so glorious and so perfect, but I had looked at it more from an international perspective, right? Foreign policy. And I hadn't been as focused on domestic policy. Um, and I think, you know, I went on with ICDJ to work in many of the countries that you listed. And increasingly, as time went on, saying, I don't need to travel 24 hours to Uganda to look at human rights issues. I don't need to go and have jet lag to be in Tunisia or the Gambia. You know, right here in my own country, there's so much also of work to be done. And I know it in a way that I don't know other countries, right, as a resident. So... This has been an ongoing conversation of, you know, being really passionate about the international work, but also feeling an obligation and responsibility to my home country. So it's been really important that ICTJ in the past few years open up an exploration of what, how can we apply what we've done, what we've learned globally to the US? How can we facilitate exchanges south to north, um, right? The US is often, saying we have all the answers in terms of human rights. They fo focus a lot on in foreign aid. Um, you know, there's a lot of democracy building abroad without really recognizing how much we still need to do internally and that we could learn from our partners in different parts of the world who have already been through these processes. 
on how to design a truth commission, how to design reparations programs. So is it a reason it's called the Transitional Justice Center? What is, yes. What's the special meaning as, ascribed to transitional? Right. You know, there's been a lot of debates. At one point, um, there was an internal discussion, should we change the name? Because that name, that word transitional sometimes confuses people. They think, is it not stable justice? Is it some sort of washed down justice? And the origin of that term transitional comes from a transition from a period of authoritarian regime or dictatorship or civil war to a moment in which a country and its people are ready to turn the page and have a new beginning. So it's, ah. it signals when our approaches are best put into practice, when there's some opening, some transition from a period in which there's repression, human rights violations, to then either there's a change in power as there was in South Africa, or there's some openings or some cracks in the regime. And there seems to be some space to push for change. And so that's the transition where you can then try and apply some of these approaches. Is there a commonality you've seen among the cities, commissions, governments, whatever word, that enables them to say, now is the moment to launch this thing? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. We, there's a few factors. It's really important that there be a demand from those that are impacted. So an organized group of victims, um, and, and advocates that are working with them, for them. And then that there be some opening or some ally in a position of power as well. Um, so it doesn't have to be, as I said, a full transformation or um, transition of power from one party to the other, but that there be some shift in public awareness or some potential to change a policy that's been in place for a long time. Or I'd say even in the US, for example, since the murder of Mr. George Floyd in the spring of 2020, that combined with everyone being home for the pandemic and the accessibility of the internet, I think it led to a broader cross-section of the United States recognizing that this is a problem that needs, that needs to be addressed. And for many people, it's like, well, finally you're waking up to this now, but you need sometimes multiple factors that will cause people in power to be willing to do something that's a bit risky. And then it needs to be the demand from those who are impacted to kind of set the terms of how that should be done. Some government involvement, some power involvement, mm -hmm. some organized group of victims, some ally who's willing to be the catalyst and motivated to be the catalyst, some pivotal issue like the George Floyd murder that lights the match. Right. That's basically the set of ingredients. Yeah, and they look very different in different places, right? In, in Colombia, 
it was the peace agreement. So the 50 year long war with the FARC came to a stalemate and the government and the FARC, the leader, leading party of the FARC were in negotiations and they decided to include elements of transitional justice in the peace negotiations. So establishing a reparations program, a truth commission. So, and it was met with, you know, pushback and resistance, but that was brought about in that way. Um, in Canada, the Truth Commission was really spurred on by the National Chief Phil Fontaine at the time, publicly speaking on TV, saying that he was a survivor of residential school and that he had been sexually abused. And then many others had the courage to come forward. And then a lawsuit started and the government had to settle. So again, it's, it can be one person, it can be a political moment, um, but those are the combination of ingredients that are needed for these processes usually to take root. You hear horror stories as part of your job. Your job is listening to horror stories and of people's inhumanity to people. How do you take care of yourself? Yeah, you know, so I think just as much as we hear horror stories, we also, in our work, spend a lot of time asking about the future. What does repair look like? What recommendations do people have for a truth commission, for government, for their lives to be better? So there's also a lot of organizing and speaking more forward-looking. We recently did a study in Uganda, Nepal, and the Gambia um, with the Global, Global Survivors Fund, and it's focused on reparations for victims of gender-based violence. And this is a topic that's been studied multiple times. And so we're very conscious of not wanting to, again, find survivors and ask them to tell us about what happened to them. We don't go there. Instead, we say, what do reparations, what would they look like for you? What have been the enduring consequences of the harm? And what would you need to make that right? What do you need the government to do for you? So it's, we're not about re-traumatizing or constantly staying in that past, but using that past as a catalyst for future change. That's beautiful. Thank you. Okay, so the word is re-traumatizing. So you don't need to go there with the victims, which were the word I'm still stumbling over because, you know, from the 70s, I've said survivors. So. Well, and uh, actually on that, I just want to pause because we've had a lot of discussion internally about victim versus survivors. And in different contexts, we use different terms. Um, ah. Okay. And in response to what the people in that context like to be called. So in Canada, it's survivors. Um, but in Uganda and in the Gambia, they want to be called victims because they say, I haven't survived yet. And also, victim has a legal ramification. Mm -hmm. You're yeah. a victim, your rights have been violated, and you are owed repair. And so while they're lobbying for reparations, lobbying for recognition of their rights, that term victim is important um, signifier that they have rights that haven't been met yet and that they're still demanding those. So 
in the United States, the term victim also doesn't necessarily always fit. Um, and we're talking about generations of harm. And so sometimes I talk about impacted communities over here, you know, descendant communities. Um, so yeah, it's a very context specific, but when we're speaking generally, I'll use the term victim because it has that legal implication of a right that was violated that now needs to be repaired. Okay. That's a great clarification. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so I'll try to go with victims because that's what people want. Or you can say survivors if in that, you know, whichever context you're referring to. Yeah, but when you're using the term, I'll echo your term. Okay. One way you can keep going doing this work is since you're not re-traumatizing the victims, you yourself don't have to go through that experience. Instead, you're about, I would, I must say, fixing it. Not, not, we're not talking about situations that can ever, ever, ever be fixed. Right. But your your solution, I don't even. You're focused on how to make a future right. out of the crumbles of the past. And so you stay in hope. Mm -hmm. Is that in a nutshell? That is, I actually really like how you just put that. Um, yeah, I stay in the hope. And as you said, you know, I have heard and read about horrific things that people have done around the world, the inhumanity. But I've also seen and witnessed and heard the amazing courage of people around the world. Like that woman who first, in the article that first got me on this journey, who was looking for who to forgive. I mean, I have been so fortunate to come across so many other incredible, especially women like in Uganda who are former child soldiers who are now advocates for other women in Northern Uganda, who just have such a strength and courage and clarity of purpose. So there's, I still think there's more good than bad. And I often say, you have to be a bit an optimist to do this work because otherwise you give up. But I think when there's injustice, there's also more people who are fighting that injustice than, than are committing it. Okay, so I'm gonna veer and ask you a question. That was a subject, I had a phone conversation I had yesterday mm. with a, a relative. Do you believe in the term evil? Do you think there are evil deeds? Would you use that word and would you apply that word to people? Do you believe there are evil, evil people? It's not a word I use often, but I think there are evil deeds, yes. I think there are some things that are so horrendous that that term qualifies. I'm more reluctant to say there are evil people because I think all of us have the capacity for good or evil. And I think all of us, if we're really honest, there are moments in of our lives where we're proud of what we've done and other things we're not so proud. And I think for most of us, those little moments are not so serious. It's not about harming somebody else very seriously, but there's things that we all do that later we're like, well, that was maybe not the nicest thing to have done. So I think the extreme cases that become the dictators or the killers, it's 
complicated, but these people are also fathers, sons, mothers, daughters. And, and I don't know that we, if we focus too much on the person being evil, we lose sight of what are also the conditions that led that evil to take on such proportionate, disproportionate extremes. Um, and I think I do believe most people want to do good to others and by others, but sometimes people are in situations where that's very difficult. And so it's really important that we take a power and a structure analysis to understand yes. harms and violations. Yep. And that sometimes people are caught up in those structures. Some have more responsibility. So I'm not at all absolving that responsibility. But I think it's not so productive to say, oh, he's evil and we just need to get rid of that person and then everything will be fine. It's not so simple. Okay, thank you. I think I'm agreeing with you. And mm -hmm. I think pointing to the evil person lets the context and the enablers and everybody else off the hook. Exactly, yeah. And that's what you're implying. Right, and I think like, if we again turn to the United States and the example of lynchings, you know, there were 2000 plus people that witnessed the lynchings and it was families. And so it wasn't just the one person who shot the bullet or who tied the rope or who you could say that one person is evil. It was the whole context, the whole society. And we need to look at that deeply. Um, and I say this as a white American, um, it's, it's, we can't just say, oh, that's just happens in the South or that's just certain types of people. There's a system that allowed that to happen and there's a system that continues to allow violations to happen. And that's what we need to look at and what we need to fix. And we can't yeah, let all of us or the system off the hook by saying it was just that one president or it was just that one governor or that one sheriff, that's too easy. Okay, so the converse of that, let go in the exact opposite direction. You have witnessed extreme instances of raw courage. You have witnessed extreme courage, courage that some of us wonder if we would ever have. Could you give an example of such a situation so we can have in our mind what it takes to go through horror and come out on the other side or take action to come out on the other side. Say so Susie in Northern Uganda and then Cassandra in Kenya. Um, and actually another in Colombia. Um, so I think Susie in, in Northern Uganda, so she was uh, attending the Oboke School for Girls and in Northern Uganda when the Lord's Resistance Army came to their school and kidnapped, I don't know the exact number, but maybe 20 or more of the girls that were 16 or 17 at the time. Are those the girls that made the news? Well, so this is, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, if you're thinking Northern Uganda, yes, it was, yes. It was a pretty prestigious, school yeah the, the lost girls italian nuns um and so 
this group of young girls were, were kidnapped and taken into captivity by the Lord's Resistance Army and forced to go uh, fight, to marry other commanders. And part of the LRA's uh, project was to create the pure Acholi race. So there was a real emphasis on marriage and having children. So not only were these girls forced to become soldiers, they were forced to become wives and then have children in circumstances that so difficult, traveling through the bush um, and, you know, finally being able to escape or be released and then coming back to their homes and to their communities. And many of them were rejected, found to be complicit with the LRA held responsible for the violations that the townspeople suffered at the hands of the LRA, forgetting that these women were abducted through, you know, they didn't sign up for this. This wasn't their choice. Um, and so just hearing the stories of what they went through, how the women supported each other through these challenges. And then now, like I said, in the face of the stigma and the, rejection that many of these women and their children suffered. Just, you know, Susie's gone on to lead women in helping them stand up for their rights. I've gone with her to meet with uh, local government officials and just hearing her speak so eloquently about what is needed, um, you know, just so impressed. And she said to me, no, I'm not a victim. You know, I'm a survivor, I'm an advocate and, I'm here now to help others get into the same position. Um, so she's just someone who, who I stay in touch with and she's managed to come to the United States to do master's studies and just really an incredible person. Oh, that's, that's inc incredible. Okay, so she's declaring I am a survivor. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it never, I, I, I don't know why, but it never occurred to me that the blame the victim thing that's so prevalent, and I think of it as a United States phenomenon, you're telling me it's a human phenomenon. Yes, I've seen it as well in the Gambia, especially for, you know, women of sexual, who are victims of sexual violence. There's that narrative, oh, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you asked for it, or this, or that. But even beyond that, these are children born of rape, of forced marriage, and they're held responsible for violations. Not and their fathers were also abducted. So it's really of the commander of the LRA. So I think sometimes as humans, we need to pinpoint a source of our ill fortune. And it needs to sometimes be personified in someone who's in front of us. If that person, the commander is far away, is not there, we don't see him or her, it's not good enough. We need to be able to say it's your fault and channel that anger somewhere, right? Just in the middle of you talking, my mind flashed. I don't think I have any problems whatsoever. <laughs> I just, what people are living through, coming back from and moving forward from continues to amaze me. Yes. Okay, yes. so that's Susie. Tell us about Cassandra. So Cassandra is from Kenya, and during the post-election violence there, she was a victim of rape and conceived a child of that rape. And there's a group, similarly as in Uganda, 
through no fault of her own, she had this baby, but then the stigma and the rejection that she and others, I think she was more supported in her community than others, but several others was considered a baby of the enemy, rejected or dishonored to the family. And so Cassandra, what she did, she didn't stay silent in her corner. She formed a group of survivors to support each other. So a space where women who had had the similar experiences could come and share their stories, provide strategies, help each other out financially if needed. And this group has grown and grown and grown. And, you know, Cassandra's actually been, maybe I could say her name because her story is pretty public, but she's been awarded a prize by Physicians for Human Rights. She's been able to travel many places. And, and share the perspective. And what she says really powerfully and really strongly is, you know, we are survivors. We know what happened to us. We know what we suffer. We know what we need. And she, I really admire her holding the UN or other big agencies claiming to, you know, that are doing what they can to help these situations and say, we appreciate the help, but you need to listen to us we know what we what we want what we need and that trying to bridge that gap between the high level policy and then those most impacted on the ground she's an amazing advocate for herself and survivors around the world oh, i have one more question to ask you and then i'm going to ask you, and then i'll ask you to talk briefly about the united states but this one question I asked you about what was in common in terms of how these uh, commissions got launched. What's in common about these women who choose to defy stigma, defy convention, and speak up and out? Is there anything that you've noticed? I mean, I think back to your first question, you know, tremendous courage. Uh, tremendous courage that I also think conviction that they're doing this not just for themselves but for their children for their peers for other women like them and so when we brought together women from Kenya Uganda Uganda and Colombia they had a common drive and purpose even though their contexts were also different they were fighting for women's voices to be heard, for women's rights to be respected, and not just on their behalf. And I think that's maybe what where the courage comes from, um, recognizing that there's a, an opportunity to, to kind of break the barriers that will benefit many more women to follow. Okay. I think, you know, a Native American woman once said, I want to make my ancestors proud. And thinking about oh, ancestors, not just the future, right. but honoring the ancestors. Mm -hmm. That's a part of my motivation. Mm -hmm. You know, I just say it somewhat flippantly. I don't have problems. And I compare what I, my life with my ancestors. I do what I'm doing to pass it forward because of what was done before me. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're saying is the driving motivation for a number of women. I think so. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So it's be it's bigger than me. It's bigger yeah. than me. Mm -hmm. 
and also I think when when you've suffered so much, there's sometimes a sense, what more could I lose, right? That's a less positive phrasing of it, but I think that sometimes that's at play. It's been so horrendous that it's, it's, it's an imperative that they're willing to take the risks because it's, it's, it's necessary. Okay. Um, United States. I've heard of the Maryland Lynch, lynching committee. I've heard of a reparations commission in California. It's not, and a couple others. I think in New Jersey, there was one. I don't know if you equate reparations with your work. Is that included, those commissions in your work? Absolutely, yes. Okay, so those are, I have exhausted my knowledge about what's going on in the United States. Please educate me. So there's actually so much going on, um, which is inspiring and exciting. Um, there's also a lot of pushback and resistance, which is always the case. But actually together with two of our partner organizations, the African-American Redress Network and First Repair, we hosted a, co a conference in Washington DC in April called Reparations 2022. And we brought people from around the country who are working to advance reparations at the city or the local level. <clears throat> so there's HR 40, which is at the federal level, has been this legislation calling for reparations commission. Um, at the federal level? Yes, at the national level, right? So that's been a proposal in Congress that the late John Conyers would present every year for 30 years. And that's been taken over by uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. And that calls so for a national commission that would look at reparations. And a lot of effort is going into that. And I think that would be extremely important. But while we, we can't wait for that to happen, there's also a lot of space and there's more of those ingredients that we discussed earlier of somebody willing at the official level with people organized at the local level. So we're seeing many cities, many municipalities pass reparations commissions, reparations legislation. Evanston, Illinois was one of the first to provide reparations um, at the city level for housing discrimination using the proceeds from marijuana tax. Um, and there's, there's actually, yeah, there's um, a lot happening in Providence, Rhode Island, in, um, in Michigan, there's efforts underway. So there's, there's, you know, I'm now I'm not going to be able to touch on all of them. But, but that's it, enough. You're letting me know right. that this is nothing in the South. This is so far you've named the East Coast, the West Coast. Right. So there's a lot of advocacy uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, and other countries in, the, in other places in the South. Tulsa needs it. Yes. Yes. I think there's no commission as of yet. Um, there's a different political climate, um, but th through the workshop that we organized, groups from the South have been exchanging with groups from the North, from the East, and really supporting each other, sharing strategies, which is also really important when you do this work. It can feel overwhelming or isolating, but then if you have somebody from another state who's had a little more success, that can, you know, enliven your, your efforts. So that's also something that we are continuing to support. How do we 
keep a space for people to share experiences and also support each other. Okay. Well, okay. I'm glad to know it's coming. Yeah. In a previous uh, interview I, I did with the a chair of the California Reparations Commission, mm, and great. I was impressed with that. So just connect the dots for me now. Your role specifically with all of these, are you, a, do you just keep in touch? Are you let others know? Are you a marketing? What what do y'all do? What do you do specifically and what does the ICTJ do? Right. So what the ICTJ does is we, we provide support in different forms to these processes. So sometimes we'll, it's really at the request of these different commissions, whether it's a reparations commission or truth commissions, we've offered support on drafting of the legislation to establish these commissions. Wow. We'll do workshops to help think through, you know, once it's established and there are newly named commissioners, helping them think through a little bit their mandate, how they might want to go about implementing it. Because we collectively within my organization have either worked on or advised over 50, over 40 truth commissions. We've been involved in many of the ones that have happened. Um, so we try and bring that comparative knowledge to the context where we work, tailoring our advice to each specific area. So you provide blueprints, you even do hands-on drafting. I can imagine a lot of hand-holding and consulting. Yeah, so it's really responding to what the needs are. Um, and sometimes, you know, our role is opening that space for victims to be able to speak with those in power. So in Uganda, we've done a lot of that where we have really good access in the government and really good connections with victim and survivor groups, bring them together so that the government has to hear directly from the voices of the women survivors, what they want, what they need. So we're, um, you know, we leverage our access and our connections to build bridges between those open spaces for there to be conversations and exchanges and then provide technical support. Okay. Well, I'm duly impressed. I have learned a lot. I am, I am super, I'm not just duly impressed. I'm super impressed. And I'm almost moved to tears that y'all even exist and that this a coordinating body exists for, I don't know what the word is, making, not making peace, but providing a way for survivors and victims to move forward in their lives and for those responsible to become aware of their responsibility, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether they do anything with it or not. Even the awareness is critical. And I think it's the first step to action. Usually it's that awareness first step to action. will lead to some action. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Uh, anyone who wants to get in touch with you or the center, how can they reach you? Yes. Um, so my email is vladish at icdj.org. For the center, you can look up our website, which is www.ictj.org. And there's actually the full list of staff and our bios and our names are clickable with the email addresses. So that's 
you know, and there's a lot of resources on our website about the different areas where we work, the resources that we have. Um, but yes, any questions, please feel free to get in touch with me. I'll be happy to respond to the ones I can or pass them on to my colleagues if I can't respond to them. Okay. Well, thank you kindly. I have tremendously enjoyed it. And uh, you have an impressive database in your head, let alone what might be throughout the organization. So thank you for coming. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I entered into this conversation with Virginie, believing I was well-versed reasonably about Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and how they work. But I was so wrong. I knew their work was complex, but it's even more huge than I could even imagine. I had five takeaways. First, I had no idea there were 40 such commissions. I know so many people who think there's no progress and all of us are going to hell in a handbasket. Some of that is occurring, yes. But meanwhile, around the globe, survivors of unspeakable crimes are finding their voice and moving forward. Second, I didn't know that non-governmental agencies had pulled together commissions. It doesn't just depend on governmental entities to take action. The Catholic Church, for example, in Guatemala was involved. Third, her definition of transitional justice is interesting to me. She spoke of transitional justice as what occurs when governments are moving out of oppression into greater freedom and accountability. Fourth, she distinguished between victims and survivors. She explained that the term victims is applicable legally to get redress for harm done. And people in some locations think of themselves as victims. In other places, many of the women she met chose to identify themselves as survivors. Victimhood is what happened to them in the past. They are now forging new lives for themselves as survivors. Last, at one point, I diverted our conversation into a discussion about Eva, and she brought it right back into a discussion about courage. This is my main takeaway. We can sink into despair about the human rights violations that we're hearing about in the news around the world or we can take hope and find our own courage to do what we can in our own sphere of influence to advance human rights.